Welcome back to U Squared, a user-wise podcast. I'm your host, Alden, and today I'm joined by Annie, a human factors engineer here at our company. U Squared is a discussion of the exponential benefit of useful usability and helps uh, to pull back the curtain and demystify guidance from the FDA. Uh, U Squared is presented by UserWise, a San Jose-based human factors consulting company. Our consultants partner with medical device companies to aid in the design process to help develop medical devices that are safe and effective. Uh, now in this episode, we'll talk about various things, including uh, our experience with uh, past projects, uh, particularly with surgical robots. Uh, we'll also talk about Annie's involvement on developing training documentation. And with that, we'll also talk about uh, what kind of training is necessary uh, for users during human factors validation testing. Uh, we will also uh, talk about training documents that are needed for commercial training and how that uh, impacts uh, and incorporates into human factors validation testing. And then we'll discuss uh, Chinese draft guidance on human factors for medical devices. Uh, now, without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Annie to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Alden. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, and I'm excited to uh, nerd out over um, human factors as we always do in this podcast. Uh, now, being interested in human factors, how did you get started? Um, how did your interest start in this field and um, how did you get started down your career path? Yeah, so my background is in biomedical engineering. That's what my uh, you know educational background is in. Um, and then for a few years after school, I worked in industry at a medical device company where I met a couple human factors engineers. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really know much about the field until I was in industry. Um, but I always had an interest in psychology while I was doing my um, engineering degree. Um, so pretty quickly realized that human factors is kind of the blending of uh, psychology and engineering. Um, so I was really drawn to it for that reason. Um, and also just being closer to the user, I think, is really interesting. Um, so that's kind of what made me shift into human factors. Um, and yeah, I'm loving it. Yeah. And it seems like psychology is a, a very much a theme um, among uh, human factors engineers, in addition to engineering, um, seems to be a blending of the two. Mm -hmm. um, I actually came from the opposite direction. I was a, I studied psychology uh, before, and then I got more into engineering. And a lot of us here are from either one of those backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So it's a good diverse, we're a good diverse group here. And it's always interesting to hear about um, where human factors engineers started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I think it's so helpful to learn from each other too with our different backgrounds. Um, you know, I feel like I'm constantly learning things from the psychology side of it, uh -huh. um, which is really interesting for me. Oh, yeah, a lot, a lot of human behavior to think about and a lot to, to bring to the table to like the various, the various projects that we work on. Yeah. Uh, we've worked on quite a few and yeah, our expertise have have definitely contributed a little bit from from many different areas mm -hmm. to each project. Um, so in terms of projects that we've worked on, uh, we've worked on quite a few and uh, a couple of them have been uh, surgical robotics, you know, um, those bring a whole set of challenges and um, a lot of moving parts. Yeah, so. definitely. And like, it's something that user wise specifically is really experienced in and has really deep knowledge about surgical robotics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which can be challenging, like you said, because they are complex devices yeah. um, in very specific use environments with oftentimes lots of different types of user groups. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those bring unique challenges to surgical robotics. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And one thing definitely I do remember um, us having to consider and uh, learn about is you know something like um, sterile fields. Mm-hmm. What it is that's that term might not be familiar to uh, people who have never worked in an OR before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, just to give you guys some context, if you aren't familiar with sterile fields. Um, it's basically what's comprised of in the OR um, using uh, sterile drapes to go over tables, um, and then it's what you put your sterile instruments on um, that are used to operate on the patient, and then uh, you know the operating site on the patient is part of the sterile field as well, mm-hmm. um, and then users can actually be part of the sterile field too um, through a process of scrubbing in and then putting on sterile uh, gowns and, and gloves and, uh, that kind of PPE. Mm. Um, so that can be a really important consideration in human factors as well. Um, because you have to be really aware of what that sterile field is. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it also plays into, um, because some, you know, different users of, of, because there are a lot of different users, um, they might all have, you know, different uh, approaches to the sterile field or, you know, um, interactions with the sterile field or even none. So it's uh, important to know if they should be tested individually or not. Right. Yeah. yeah. And like at what point in the process are they considered sterile? Mm-hmm. You know, or do certain tasks need to happen in the sterile field or out of the sterile field? Um, those are all reasons why it's really important to understand your sterile field. Um and understand how that impacts those specific tasks. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and in addition, uh, training is also uh, very important when you're uh, considering the various user groups and and how you'll you'll test each one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that's you know uh, you know an important thing to consider for any complex medical device. Right. So while we're on the topic of training, uh, you been involved in working on some training documentation before. Um, so can you shed some insight on uh, on what's involved in that? Yeah, yeah. So like you said, I worked on some, some training programs before. Um, so those would be commercial training programs um, for some of our clients that we work with. Um, so kind of like where you start is an overarching training plan or training program document mm-hmm. um, that kind of just lays out how the training is going to work um, like if there's multiple modules or something along those lines. Um, and then uh, it also kind of guides the other documents that you might have as part of your training program as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the most important document um, in a commercial training program would be your training checklist, um, which is kind of what it sounds like. Um, it's basically just a, a checklist uh, document that trainers would follow um, to make sure that they you know, check off information as they cover it with uh, the users. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really derived from your critical tasks, um, which, uh, you know, depending on kind of the, the regulatory guidance that you're, you're looking at, mm-hmm. um, basically are the tasks that if a user does them incorrectly or doesn't, doesn't perform them um, can uh, lead to uh, serious harm. Um, so those are really, you know, your most important tasks that users have to get right. Um, so that's why you want to make sure that those are all at a minimum covered in your training. And so then beyond that, uh, you can also add other kind of supplementary information. Um, those could look like non-critical tasks that might just be helpful in keeping the workflow for your trainer 
um, or maybe there are tasks that aren't necessarily critical, but there's something that a user would need to do to get to the next step in the workflow. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's if it's helpful to make sure that trainers cover that information as well, then you can add it to the checklist too. Um, and beyond being just kind of a helpful reference document for your trainers, um, a training checklist is also a record of, of the training and what was covered. Um, so you can have this, you know, physical record that a trainer said, yes, we covered all of these critical tasks. Um, and then they can also sign off and say, okay, so this user has had all of this information conveyed to them, um, and they can safely use the device. Um, and so it's also kind of a a way for your trainer to, to give the thumbs up for a certain, uh, user that they've been trained and that they feel confident that that user will be able to go on and safely use the device. Um, And then beyond your training plan and training checklist, uh, you can also develop things such as a training presentation or a guide, something along those lines that um, isn't necessarily kind of structured quite like a checklist. Um, It might just be kind of other helpful information that the trainer can follow, kind of keep them on track. And then beyond that, you know, if there's other helpful graphics or images that you want to be able to show to users um, or to your trainees, um, you can put that in kind of a presentation format, something along those lines. Um, but really, you know, like the, the most critical thing when you're mm-hmm. developing a commercial training program is that training checklist, because um, that's really your, your record of, of uh, your, your minimum required training um, to make sure that your users can, can safely use the device. And all of those definitely uh, have a big impact and, and are should be considered when you're doing a human factors validation uh, test. Yeah, definitely. Because, um, you know, when you're doing your human factors validation study, you're trying to make it as realistic as possible, as close to real life use as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, if you have this commercial training program that users will be following and, and trained on in real life, then mm-hmm. you want to... Uh, you know, recreate that as closely as possible in your human factors validation study. Um, so in that way, it's really helpful to use your actual commercial training checklist when you're training users for your validation study um, so that you have a clear line to say, hey, our users were trained the exact same way that they would be in mm-hmm. in real life. Because um, really the most important thing is that you don't want to be over-training your users for your validation study. Um, you don't want to give them more information than they would have in real life um, that, you know, might make them more successful um, for, mm-hmm. for the tasks that you're testing them on than they would have in real life. Um, and then, you know, in the same vein, you want to make sure that you include a training decay that's uh, appropriate and as accurate as possible to real life as well, um, which is the time between when you finish up training and when you start uh, the, the testing sessions for your validation study. Um, so, you know, you want to make all of that within, within reason as, as much as possible, um, as close as you can to real life. And that's a lot to consider just for training, uh, for human factors validation. But yeah. thankfully, you know, uh, the FDA does, uh, have guidance for that. Um, but that guidance might differ between regulatory agencies. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know, uh, the, uh, Chinese draft guidance does differ uh, but also has similarities uh, to the FDA guidance as well. And I believe you wrote a blog post about this topic. Um, so it would be great if you could shed some light on that. Yeah. So uh, like you said, the 
The Chinese uh, Regulatory Agency for Medical Devices has recently come out with a draft guidance for human factors and how to incorporate that into medical device design. Um, so like you said, you know, some similarities, some differences. Um, there are a lot of similarities between the Chinese draft guidance and the FDA 2016 guidance on human factors, um, such as kind of the overall human factors process. They look really similar between the two guidances. Um, and, you know, there's some recommended tools in the Chinese draft guidance that look really similar to a lot of the, the tools that the FDA recommends as well, you know, such as interviews, um, you know, doing task analysis and risk analysis, such as, you know, use FMEA, those kinds of tools. Um, and then, you know, obviously also your usability testing, your uh, summative or validation testing, those are also recommended uh, tools to use um, in the Chinese draft guidance, which are also in the FDA 2016 guidance as well. And so are there any uh, differences uh, between the two guidances? Yeah, there's a, there's a few. Um, one kind of place that might look a little different is uh, the users and the types of users. Um, so the Chinese draft guidance uh, actually specifically calls out uh, users such as uh, people who maintain or install or dispose of devices as being out of scope mm -hmm. of the Chinese draft guidance, um, which is kind of interesting because uh, the FDA also directly calls out those people as being in scope. Um, so those are kind of in direct conflict. Um, so, you know, those kind of the scope of your users might look a little different between the two guidances. Um, and then also, you know, the regionality of the users uh, matters as well in both guidances. Um, because basically the Chinese draft guidance wants you to use uh, Chinese users, um, the people who will actually be using the device, um, for your, your summative uh, usability testing. Mm -hmm. um, and the FDA requires you to use uh, US uh, users. Um, unless, you know, the, the Chinese draft guidance does say if you can prove without a doubt that, uh, you know, differences between users in two different markets doesn't impact um, the, the safe use of your device, um, then, you know, maybe you can leverage that information. Um, but I think for the most part, they're looking for um, Chinese users as their, their participants for, for those types of usability testing. Um, so in some ways, kind of similar, um, because you want to be using the, the users from the region where the device will be used. Um, but those might differ, you know, obviously, because you're in two different regions. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's very insightful about users. And, you know, while we're on the topic of, uh, of, of users, um, you mentioned the type of users, but what about the, um, the sample size uh, of users for usability testing? Yeah, so that, that can look a little bit different also between the two guidances. Um, so for formative studies, for example, formative usability studies, um, the Chinese draft guidance uh, calls out that you should use uh, five to eight users mm -hmm. per user group, uh, whereas the FDA doesn't have uh, a specific number for formative studies. Um, and then the, the summative study requirements look a little different as well. Mm -hmm. um, so the FDA, you know, across the board basically just says minimum 15 users per user group for your, your summative uh, usability study. Um, whereas in the Chinese draft guidance, um, there's kind of a little bit of a difference if you have one user group versus multiple user groups. Um, 
and it's generally more users than the FDA requires. Um, so if you have just one type of user, one user group, mm-hmm. um, the Chinese draft guidance says that you should have a minimum of 20 users, but you should really target 30 users is what they would prefer. Um, and then if you have multiple user groups, they say that you can have a minimum of 15 users per user group, mm-hmm. um, but you should target 20 users per user group if possible. Um, so just kind of on average, you're looking at uh, larger sample sizes, um, typically uh, with the Chinese draft guidance versus the FDA uh, 2016 guidance. I see. Very insightful. And are there any other different concepts between the two? Yeah, so there's kind of this interesting concept in the Chinese draft guidance that's not really uh, called out specifically in the FDA 2016 guidance for human factors, um, which is called uh, comparative analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, it's just if there's a device that's already on the market that's already approved um, on the Chinese market, um, that might be pretty similar to a device that you're trying to introduce, a new device into the market, um, you know, depending on kind of similarities and differences, you can leverage a lot of um, the information about that already on market device. Um, so basically the way it works is you first do a comparison of the two devices, your new device and the on-market device, kind of list out all of the key differences. Um, and then, you know, depending on what those differences are, you need to do um, some summative usability testing for each of those key differences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and on top of that, you also need to look at um, the the on-market data for the for the current device, um, see if there's any recalls, if there's any adverse events, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, um, and whether those you know those events have introduced new risks that maybe weren't foreseen uh, when that market was coming or when that device was coming on the market, um, and then you'll want to do your summative usability testing on all of those new risks as well for your new device. Um, So you can kind of see how this is mostly helpful for devices that might not have large differences. They might look really similar as already on market devices. Mm -hmm. Um, And then especially devices, you know, that don't have a lot of new risks introduced as well, um, because you can basically just leverage a lot more information but you know, as you get more and more different from devices that are currently on the market, or if there's been a lot of new risks introduced, you're getting closer and closer to a full, um, you know, summative usability study anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, definitely still an interesting tool for for people to leverage if you're introducing a new market mm-hmm. or new device onto the Chinese market. It's very important information for uh, manufacturers and for people who are who are going to be doing human factors validation. So. Thank you for shedding light onto uh, the Chinese draft guidance uh, on human factors for medical devices. Um, while I'd definitely like to discuss more uh, about the regulations with you, uh, I'm afraid that is it for our episode. Um, now, for our viewers, um, what are your thoughts on uh, the topics that we covered in this episode, specifically the Chinese draft guidance, um, working with um, uh, surgical robots, especially with regards to human factors, and um, training and uh, how uh, training of participants and users um, affects human factors validations test validation testing. Um, let us know in the comments or visit uh, our website at userwiseconsulting.com. Uh, you'll also find links in the description for any resources uh, that we covered 
uh, as well as our contact information. And in addition, if you visit our website, um, you get to read Annie's blog post about um, the Chinese draft guidance and get more uh, information uh, from that. So thank you again, Annie, for uh, appearing on our show. That was very insightful. Uh, and that was a, a lot of information, but it was great information. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alden. It was a great time. Yeah, it was a great time. Glad you're here. So with that, uh, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.